This is a new dimension in sound. The sound here has been recorded on the tape magnetically. This is us. We're back. Oh my god. Oh my god, Dave. <laughs> Dave. Welcome to episode three of A Dave in the Life. Thanks for listening, and don't forget you can get in touch with the program anytime you want. Davo Radio is my handle across all of the social medias, and you can always email me direct, davo at rebelfm.com.au. Going to get through a couple of great music interviews in this episode, and then in the next show, we're going to do some weird shit, because, well, I feel like having some fun and doing some of that stuff that I don't necessarily get to do on the radio. Hey, but today... We'll chat to John Steele real soon, the 77-year-old, still touring the world, still playing the drums, still an absolute treasure and a raconteur of the highest order. But first up is Dan Maines from Clutch. He's the bass player. The new record, Book of Bad Decisions, is out now. And 12 records deep, they are still just on top of their game. Since 1993, they've been making records their own way, uh, defying the odds and just doing it basically all themselves. And... This new record is just incredible, start to finish. 15 songs from start to finish. Remember how they used to make records? You'd put it on, you'd leave it, and it was just freaking great the whole way through. Yeah, well, Clutch do, and this record truly is sensational. And no, they're not paying me. If they were, I wouldn't be making bloody podcasts. I'd tell you, I'd be touring the world or something. Anyway, here's Dan Maines from Clutch. It's a huge record. There's 15 songs on this LP, and it's, it's great from start to finish, like... An old-fashioned rock record should be. For the band, is that something that you're all conscious of, making sure the record is strong from end to end? Absolutely. I mean, that's something that we think about as we're writing the songs. You know, we we kind of we, we keep a running uh, list of what we have, whether they're you know total, totally complete songs or just ideas, and uh, you know what each song you know covers style-wise, tempo-wise, things like that. And we, we really make an effort to try to cover as much ground as we can uh, by the time we get into the studio. This is an absolutely fantastic record. Vance Powell's on this record. You guys have employed him for, for guitar tones and for different ways of recording, and it really does show across this record. It's incredible. Book of Bad Decisions. We've already four singles deep into this record, which is almost unheard of in, in modern rock radio. How to Shake Hands, a great song from the record. See you guys paying homage to John Lee Hooker and his uh, JLH for, for President tune. Neil puts forward his case for presidency, but if you were president, Dan, what would your mandate be? What would you give the American people in the world? <laughs> uh, I think, uh, you know, Maybe uh, longer weekends would be a good start. <laughs> you know, maybe uh, maybe kick things off on a Thursday instead of uh, a Friday. I like it. Dan Maines for president, mate. If you ever want to run and you need someone to work for you, I'm, I'm happy to work for you just based purely on yeah. that. That's Less work, less stress. I like it. I absolutely love it. For this record, you guys did something different. You all kind of brought riffs to the table on this record. Even drummer John Paul brought some ideas in on mandolin. Can I guess potentially which track you might have had a hand in? It's kind of a a collection of everybody's ideas. You know, everybody's uh, got a strong input on each song. Um, I think one of my favorite tracks that started with uh, some basic ideas of mine off the new record would I think weird times which I don't know if you've heard the entire album or not indeed yes it's, uh, 
but that's that's one of my favorites off the tra- off the album that uh, had its uh, beginnings with some Dan Main's bass lines. There's a there's a great little rolling bass line on Emily Dixon. I really love that shit. It's got a catchy little intro to it, and it just kind of chugs and moves along. In fact, the, the, the whole record does that. You guys all met in high school a long, long time ago. I'd imagine a friendship that lasts that long instills a lot of trust in each other's ideas. Uh, for sure. I mean, we when I started jamming with these guys, I literally knew like nothing <laughs> about uh, how to play music. I was just starting to get into guitar. I, I'd, I'd never really taken it that serious until – I was uh, invited to jam with John Paul and Neil, and this was this was in the beginning of twelfth grade in high school. And I mean, I I went over there with a guitar because that's what I had, uh, but it wasn't long before you know we realized that if we were going to do anything as a band. Uh, we needed a bass player and I didn't know anything about bass to be honest. Uh, but I just went into a store and I bought the cheapest one they had, which was a Fender P bass knockoff. Uh, I think the band, the brand of it was called sessions. It, it cost less than, uh, 90 bucks. And, uh, I just, you know, slowly learned what the bass was about and uh, realized that that is what really attracted me to a lot of the music that I found, uh, you know, interesting. And, uh, you know, it took me actually picking up the instrument to make that connection. Um, So, I mean, when I think about you know, making and creating music. I mean, I've been doing it with these guys since the very beginning. And, you, you know, I can't help but have a strong connection to them musically because of that. Absolutely. I read recently Neil was saying that he, he, he barely knew how to play guitar when you guys first jumped into a studio and started making records. And you guys have always kind of held firm and fast to, to your ideas of how you wanted to make records, etc. Do you think that's all kind of symbiotic in the way that works and the, the sense that you guys were all kind of learning as you went and that you wanted to really be in control of your own destiny due to that symbiotic kind of nature of how it was rolling? I think so. You know, I think we, you know, we were all kind of in the same boat. Uh, John Paul and Tim were a little more advanced than Neil and I as far as uh, – you know, playing their instruments, uh, and both John Paul and, and Tim had been in the uh, high school band program, so they had a jump start on, uh, you know, what it's like to play with others. Um, you know, but I think a lot of like the the approach to the music business, I think we very subconsciously drew a lot from the local music scene of Washington, D.C., which was a very a very DIY yeah. uh, type of a, a music uh, scene. 
uh, I mean, we're going back to, <clears throat> you know, the kind of, of music that I was listening to at that time, which really prompted me to want to be in a band in the first place, listening to punk music. You know, the DC scene was very DIY. And, uh, you know, the idea of, of recording your own music, making your own cassette tapes or, you know, finding a way to press up your own vinyl, you know, that was something that, uh, you know, we had a very uh, strong sense of uh, being able to do that because it was already proven by others before us that that was something that you could do and it's something that would work well for you. And, uh, you know, I mean, right now we find ourselves in a situation where we own our own record label. Yeah. And uh, it is, you know, it's something that is very challenging still, even though we've been at it for uh, close to 10 years. Um, you know, but it's something that, that has benefited us immensely. And especially since the industry itself is in such a constant state of change nowadays, you know, you, you really can't rely on the formula that worked for a lot of bands, you know, 20 years Absolutely. ago. Absolutely. Well, it definitely does work for you guys on this record, Book of Our Decisions. It's the 12th record. And, and quite often I chat to bands, Dan, and they say, this is the best record we've ever done. And it feels kind of like a PR line. But this record is just as good as any of the records throughout your career. So incredibly well done to you guys. I mean, I have to ask this. And, and, and quite often when I, when I chat to you know, accomplished songwriters and musicians, they kind of can seem abstract and intense as human beings. Neil is an incredible lyricist, a great storyteller. Off stage, is he abstract and intense or is that just literally something that comes through in his music that potentially people may misread i think he keeps it all in and lets it all out on stage if you saw him on the street uh he would you know he would seem perfectly normal and uh he does a good job of putting on a normal you know every every man type of uh facade yeah uh off stage but yeah, on stage, a completely different animal. <laughs> Speaking of on stage, uh, can we hopefully see that different type of animal, both Neil, yourself and the rest of the band, back in this country sometime soon? It's been a while for, for long-suffering fans. It has been a while. I think the last time we were there, we were on tour with uh, Cosmic Psychos. Uh, that feels... <laughs> like a long time ago <laughs> are you still in therapy from the tour with the cosmic psychos because those guys are some <laughs> bloody loose units i love those guys they were a lot of fun i love their music and uh yeah i hope to see them uh when we do make it back there uh but yeah we don't have any firm plans as of yet but that's definitely something we're working on. All right. Well, if someone's listening that, that brings bands to the country and tours them, please bring Clutch back. You're not going to get a better live rock and roll show, uh, and especially if you can get the Cosmic Psychos guys involved as well. Uh, did you get to play the the bum game with the Cosmic Psychos where you drop the 50-cent piece out of your bum into a, a beer glass, or were you not treated to that disgustingness? <laughs> no, it must have been a, a short tour because we never made it to that point. <laughs> 
Oh, fantastic. Uh, mate, I was looking at your bass rigs and setup, and, and it kind of makes a bit more sense now that you say you weren't originally a bass player, but you got quite a few, the Lacklands, the Gibson, the Rickenbacker, the Fender. If you, your house is on fire and you, you dragged your kids and the wife and the dogs and everything outside, which would be the first guitar that you'd go back for? It had to be my Rickenbackers. I got two of them, and they have never steered me wrong. They're a beautiful, beautiful uh, machine. Very heavy to play, I find, the Rickenbackers, but absolutely beautiful. Hey, something we love to ask everyone that comes on the show, mate. Uh, do you remember the first record that you ever got as a fan? What was it? What format was it? Do you, do you still own it? Well, I remember records that were given to me, like before I could scrape up enough money to to buy one mm-hmm. when i was i i have an older brother he's uh about five years older than me and uh i mean he was the one who turned me on to a lot of good punk music like the clash uh bad brains uh dead kennedys i think the first record that i bought might have been uh, that's i don't you know i i remember buying a Men at Work album a long time ago. I think it was my first vinyl, actually. Men at Work. How about that? Dan from Clutch, one of his very first records was Men at Work. And it's incredible how many overseas musos that I chat to were hugely inspired by Men at Work. In this country, we thought they were big, but they were just absolutely mammoth, especially in America. You're listening to A Dave in the Life, Episode 3. We just spoke with Dan Maines from Clutch, and now we turn to classic rock and the blues and history of all great music. It all heads back to the 60s and 50s and the Delta Blues, doesn't it? And beyond, John Steele of The Animals, 77. When you listen to this interview, bear in mind he's 77 years old. If I've got half of the brains, half of the stories, half of the skill and half of the energy of John Steele when I'm 77, geez, I tell you, I'll be absolutely living the dream. John Steele, the animals in the country, November, metropolistouring.com and chatting to me now. What's uh, what's happening in your part of the world, mate? Whereabouts are you? What's, What's going on apart from the interviews today? Oh, I'm, I'm in the northeast of England, where I originally came from. I'm uh, about 30 miles, 50 kilometres north of Newcastle. And it's a beautiful, beautiful day. Blue skies, about 21 degrees, very pleasant. And uh, all, is, all is well with the world. 21 degrees, that's, um, that's a heat wave for you guys over there, isn't it? <laughs> Just about, yeah. We've had a very good summer. And some, um, some of it was into the 30s, so it's been exceptional. But uh, it's it's fading away now. We can see autumn coming around the corner. <laughs> well, you'll be perfectly warmed up for this tour. Uh, you're back here a little bit later on this year, October, November. We're excited to have you back. MetropolisTouring.com for ticks and details. If I can cast your mind back to the, the very start of your career, what advice mm-hmm. would you give yourself back then as a young musician? What would be the one number one piece of advice you'd tell yourself? Oh, um... <clears throat> Get everything down in writing. <laughs> Make sure you know where the money goes. <laughs> like everybody else of that uh, that time, I think every band the, the, of uh, all our contemporaries, you know, even the Beatles and the Stones, we were all ripped off in the early days, you know. Um, so that's what you got to take care of in the early stage. Uh, make sure 
you know where where, where all the money is. <laughs> <laughs> That's very sage advice. Even nowadays, uh, when most bands are self-managed, yeah. make sure you make sure you're even watching each other as well. I know plenty of young independent bands that spend most of their weekends uh, drinking their merchandise money away. But uh, look, enough of that. <laughs> What's uh, what's what what do you think's been the highlight of your career? If you had to pick a, a tombstone moment, I know it's a, it's a tough question to pin it down to to one particular moment, but is there one that stands out when you think fondly back over the years? Yeah, um, well, you, you've got to think think in terms of when when we were all about fifteen and in, in the middle of the nineteen fifties, um, all our influences. You know, we're talking like just 10 years after the end of World War Two, and, you know, everybody was, you know, still getting through rationing and austerity and, you know, things were things were a bit grim at the time. And it was just starting to lighten up. Things were, you know, th- things were starting to happen in the, in the mid-50s. And we were, as young teenagers, we were influenced by everything that seemed to come from, from America, you know? Movies, rock and roll was new. Uh, there was all kinds of stuff coming coming over the, the Atlantic, and we were inspired and by all of that. Um, so when in the in the sixties, nineteen sixty four, in fact, we had we were number one in, in in America, flying out to to do our first gigs in the states at um, the <coughs> Paramount Theater in Times Square. <laughs> that, that that was a standout thing for us, you know, because until then America had seemed like a, another planet, you know, in the movies, people, you know, young people had cars and telephones and fridges. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it was like a, it was like a trip to a, a promised land for us, you know, and we, we got there and it was great. I mean, <laughs> we, when we arrived at um, in New York, they, they, they took us into into Manhattan. <clears throat> Each of us in, in a, an English sports car called a Triumph Tiger, <clears throat> uh, and uh, we were with, with a motorcycle escort, and we were driving down the freeway, sort of thing, in, in these sports cars with <laughs> with a motorcycle escort, and the and the, the um, Manhattan skyline looming up ahead of us, you know, and it was whoa, <laughs> can this be really happening, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, that type of treatment only reserved now for royalty and for politicians. And, and in that time as well, I think I think nowadays for, for my generation and the younger generation as well, we kind of take for granted the fact that, that back in the 60s, everything was so brand new. You, you couldn't look up pictures of Manhattan on the internet. You couldn't do all those types of things. So as you said, literally, it was all brand new experiences a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah, very very thrilling time to be uh, to be young and daft. <laughs> Absolutely, I often feel like I may have been born in the wrong time, but it's not about me. We are talking to John Steele of the animals in the country across October and November. Really excited to have him back in the country again. Uh, I recently went along and saw the Carol King musical, Beautiful John, and I was reminded of just all of the incredible songs from the era, and particularly We Got to Get Out of This Place, which of course was written by the legendary songwriters Barry Mann and Cynthia Wilde. Can you take us back to how the band ended up recording that song? How did you guys become entrenched with those incredible songwriters, so to speak? It was um, the guy who signed us uh, for for a recording deal was uh, was a young independent producer called Mickey Most, who became very successful. And uh, the um, 
the animals we never really had a a, a strong songwriting team like uh, like Lennon McCartney and and Jaggers and Richard uh, it never quite worked out for us so um what we seem to be really really good at is in, uh, making an interpretation of um songs written by other people and there was a there was a there was a famous building in in Manhattan called the Brill building and it, it was packed full of songwriters like Carol King and 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 uh, uh, I don't know there was do- dozens of them and Mickey most um went over there and came back with you know he, he was he was shopping for songs basically and uh, he came back and one of them was that that song we got to get out of this place and he, and he said I think we've got a got a hit record if we do this right you know and uh we we seem to be able to do that you know with uh with it, we got to get out of this place. It's my life. Even House of the Rising Sun. Um, everybody and don't let me be mis- misunderstood. What it it seems like um, people regard the animals versions of of these songs as as the definitive version. You know, the, the, the one that sticks out in everybody's memory. Absolutely. And that was this, that was true. Of we got to get out of this place. It's become an anthem all over the world. You know, kids leaving school, kids graduating from university. Uh, whatever, leaving the job for a new job. Everybody's saying we gotta get out. <laughs> we gotta get out of this place, you know. There is a house in New Orleans. They call the rising sun. Uh, as you touched on just before, House of the Rising Sun, of course. Another amazing song, and it traces its lineage back not just to to the animals and other great artists, but sometimes called Rising Sun Blues. Uh, for me, it, it's an intriguing thing. Was there a particular version of this song throughout history that you appreciate more? Was there one that drew the band particularly towards recording it? I mean, Lead Belly does an, an incredible version of that song as well. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's 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 got a nobody really knows. You know, there's no known author of the song. Um, I think probably Lead Belly is the earliest one anybody can remember. But the one that um, we all clicked with was um, on on. The... Oh, <laughs> that's a low flying buzz bomb just went past. Uh, sorry about that. That's okay. It sounded like the, a uh, jet. It was. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, they sometimes do that over here. We've got a, a military base uh, some miles away where um, people have uh, war games, you know. Yeah. I mean, when that happens, you get jets flying around all over the place. Anyway, sorry about that. That's okay. So, the, uh, yeah, the, the, the version that, um, that we clicked with was on Bob Dylan's very first album, his, his, uh, his debut album, yes. which was purely acoustic. Um, but that's the one where... We, that's the standout track as far as we were concerned and it was just something we, we wanted to do you know we, we thought let's try it and um, we played it uh, we sort of you know ran it, ran it through until we felt comfortable with it um, it, it was coincidental that at, at the time we were working on this uh, we were signed up to to support Chuck Berry on his first ever tour of the UK um, in the May of 1964 that was and um, it was a package tour. There were other bands on. And uh, Chaz Chandler, our bass player, said, um, you know, he said, Carl Perkins is on the tour as well. And the, the other two, and 
the national teams and da da da. So he says everybody's going to be trying to outrock Chuck Berry, and, and the, this this song <laughs> is going to be a complete contrast. Uh, so we should really, you know, really put it in the set. And Char- yeah, I mean, Charles later became the the producer and manager of Jimi Hendrix. So yeah. You could already tell by the, you know early on that he had his uh, business head, and and he was he was dead right when we played House of the Rising Sun on that tour everywhere. There was this sort of electric atmosphere in the audience. People just went, "Oh, this is something special," you know. So we um, we persuaded Mickey to break. You know, we in the middle of in the middle of the tour, we we took off to to London, went into a a, a, a little studio where, where we'd recorded our first single. <laughs> it was in a basement, and it was a single track, you know. <laughs> so we arrived about two or three in the morning, set up. Did a few bars to get the, the balance right for the engineer, and we played it. And it was one single take, no overdubbing, no nothing. It was just a, a single. It was a live performance, effectively just recorded. And um, Mick, Mickey said, "Come into the control room and listen to this." Uh, so we trooped in. Engineer played it back, and Mickey said, "That's a hit record." And we went, "Oh yeah, thank you." And uh, the engineer said. Uh, big problem there, Mickey. He said, um, "What well, he says, it's four and a half minutes long." And that uh, well, <laughs> the, I mean, the, the industry was sort of fixed on this two, three minute ma- maximum for a for a yeah, single. Absolutely, you know that was from the old shellac '78 days. Uh, and the engineer told him that, and Mickey said, "The hell with that. We're in the final age now. Let's go with it." <laughs> <laughs> I remember that distinctly, and uh, he did go with it. It was um, it was quite a ballsy thing to do because uh, initially the the BBC, which was the only station available to us, um, they they didn't want to play it because it was long, and um, we eventually broke it on on a, on a TV show called Ready Steady Go, which was the show to be in and what yeah. seen on, on a Friday night. The weekend starts here was the, was the slogan. And we played it live on uh, Ready Steady Go, and it took off, and f- they just, you know, marched out of the shops, and the BBC had to start playing it because it was suddenly in the charts, you know, and that that was that was how House of the Rising Sun kind of broke the mold. The BBC, many times throughout history, has probably made some songs a little bit more infamous by playing that 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 hand, so to speak, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah <they're> a... <laughs> Funny old guys. <laughs> <laughs> that is fantastic. Uh, How's the Rising Sun? One of those great songs that gives you the goosebumps. Get the goosebumps with John Steele and the Animals this October and November. MetropolisTouring.com. Uh, and that is intriguing, as you said before, as well. Uh, even nowadays, radio stations are remiss to play songs that are any more than four minutes longer. And, and it just really was a big thing back in those days. People just didn't, don't understand, do they? Yeah, it was. Uh, it was. Uh, it was something about um, that song. I mean, it was the first. W- w- you know, w- with hindsight, we didn't realise we were breaking the mould in, uh, in the time limit at the time. Um, we didn't realise at, at the same time that we were probably the first crossover country uh, folk rock music. You know, it was, it was a folk song that we turned into a rock song. <laughs> so it was just all kinds of things that song. Absolutely. You but went, anyway, did it for us. You went electric before Dylan did, so to speak. Uh, the band, yeah. 
the, the bands and the, the, the whole British invasion, as it were, kind of drew from the blues, as we've touched on quite a bit in this interview. Uh, we were on a poll recently asking the greatest blues players of all time. Uh, as a fan and an older fan, I'd love to hear who you would rate in the greatest list of best blues players ever. Oh, well, you've got to say, um, you know, Muddy Waters. Um, we, we, had, uh, we had the pleasure and privilege to, to back... John Lee Hooker when he first uh, came over to, to tour in England wow. uh, before we even were the animals when we were still playing at our, uh, our local jazz and blues club in Newcastle called the Club of Gogo, and uh, we got to back John Lee there and uh, what a lovely guy and uh, what, a, what a, a unique talent he was and we also backed um, Sonny Boy Williamson who was an evil old bugger who <laughs> <laughs> around because we played with him several times and he would, he would he played harmonica and sang sang the blues and you know he would he would he would call out a, a song in a key and then he start playing it in a completely different key on his harmonica <laughs> <laughs> and we had to jump through hoops to get behind him you know but he was uh, he was quite a character yeah there were some some great old guys around in those days Absolutely. Uh, we have been chatting to John Steele of the Animals. Really excited for this tour coming up. Hey, one thing I ask everyone that I speak to, and, I, and I've, I've asked you this question before, is the first record, but I thought let's do something different because I have asked you this before, and I remember that you said that uh, the very first piece of shellac, as you said, was uh, Bill Haley, Shake, Rattle and Roll. So I want to take you back da- down that memory lane, if you can remember. Do you remember the first concert that you ever went to? Who did you see? What venue was it at? The first concert I went to see was um, at, at Newcastle City Hall, um, and it was a it was a British Dixieland come blues band <clears throat> called Mick Mulligan's Magnolia Jasmine, <laughs> <laughs> and, and the singer the singer with the band was a, a guy called George Melly, and he became a, a kind of British institution. He, he died not so long ago, in the last couple of years or so. But um, he, he was basically a, uh, like a male Betty Smith. He was kind of a camp blues singer, and he, he was great. He was a fabulous entertainer and a very funny guy. And that was the first show I ever went to, and, uh, and really enjoyed it. Was that- and uh, the second one was sorry. I was going to say that the second one immediately after that was um, to see Louis Armstrong. It was his first oh, yeah. visit to the to the UK since the thirties, and and he was one of my heroes. And people forget these days, you know, they think he's he's the guy who sang, you know, What a Wonderful World and yeah. whatever. But he, he was in, in his day. He was the Jimi Hendrix of his day. You know, he was fantastically creative and and his. Not not just his trumpet style, but his his singing style inspired everybody uh, um, who came after him, and people like you know Frank Sinatra and Bing Crosby and, and all of those greats from the crooner days uh, all all tipped their hats to Louis Armstrong uh, how important he was to them. So that was a fantastic experience to see him at, 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 still at the top of his game in in 1956. That was. That would have been absolutely amazing and uh, giving me almost tingles down the spine just thinking about that. What a great memory. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. And thank you so much for thank taking the welcome. time to chat with me once again, John. Looking forward to seeing you in the country again real soon. Looking forward to that as well, David. It's great to talk to you again. So, um, yeah, many thanks for that.
That's a wrap. Episode number three of Dave in the Life. Absolute pleasure chatting to you. Thank you so much for listening. I truly appreciate it. If you haven't already, subscribe via your podcast provider, and then that way you won't have to come back to the website each week and download it. Or literally just rock up inside your phone, kind of like you two, except less invasive, less shithouse. You might actually hear about some good music. Give us a like, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you want. Or if you want to email direct, you don't have social media, you can contact me, Davo, at rebelfm.com.au. That's Davo, D-A-V-O, at rebelfm.com.au. Cheers. Take care of yourself.